Hello everybody and thank you for joining us today for our Insight programme which for the last 10 years has been looking at some of the fundamental science questions needed to understand the influence and value of structures in our marine environment. My name is uh, Dickon Howell and I'm the programme director for Insights and I'm just going to introduce the webinars today. I just want to make a point about the use of science and decision making. Those in government who are making decisions are invariably dealing with multiple and competing interests and their decisions need to be made in a transparent, accountable and proportionate way. Science plays a critical role in informing decision making and enabling action, particularly in identifying alternatives and clarifying the costs and benefits of particular courses of action so that policymakers can choose between them. What we've been doing in the Insight programme over the last few months and will continue to do over the next 12 months is to work closely with policymakers to identify where the Insight science of the last decade can support their work. Insight's coming to the end of its second phase. Many of you will be familiar with the programme, but it's worth saying that when Insight was set up, it was the first real joint industry partnership of its kind in UK marine research, and its aim has always been to provide stakeholders with the independent scientific evidence to better understand the influence of man-made structures on the ecosystem of the North Sea. We're looking at topics as broad-ranging as foraging by marine predators, testing the limits of the UK autonomous fleet, understanding fish aggregation and blue carbon benefits, and developing AI to speed up the understanding of biodiversity on marine structures. First to talk will be Professor Joanne Porter from Harriet Watt, then Dr Tom Wilding from SAMS, and then Paul Summerfield, uh, Dr Paul Summerfield from Plymouth Marine Laboratory. Following on from our scientific insights, we'll have Victoria Metheringham from DEFRA to provide us with some marine policy related insights for consideration alongside the marine biodiversity findings, and we're really lucky to have Victoria with us here today. But first up is uh, going to be Joe Porter from Harriet Watt. Hi, everybody. I'm going to just start off by saying that I'm the leader for the Chase Sands project. The main aim of our project is to enhance our understanding of the connectivity of the hard substrate epifauna across the artificial substrate ecosystem of the North Sea. And just to give a bit more context, our particular project relates to challenge one of the INSIGHT programme, which is understanding the role of these man-made structures as an interconnected hard substrate network. So one of the first things we did in our programme was to undertake a literature review. We wanted to understand which of the key species that we could use in the study to understand the connectivity. And as part of this process, we had to undertake a, an overview of the constraints on why some species would be more useful to use for the questions that we want to answer. So some of the constraints are to do with how much of the, the uh, tissue that we can get part of our work. We also were interested in distribution vectors, and this relates to non-native species. And we're also interested in things that are not genetically too complicated. For example, if we get into cryptogenetics, that can make the analysis quite a lot more complex to perform. Now, we've also looking at this in two different ways. We're looking at physical settlement onto structures that we put out, but we're also looking at modeling work and looking at connectivity analysis using particle tracking processes. And this is to do with larval dispersal. So we've selected out from some of those species, those that have traits which are particularly important for the hard substrate analysis. Analysis. With help from Aquaterra, 
We've been looking at a site selection process for offshore deployment, and we've settled on some sites associated with wind farms, some sites across the central area, and then some sites much further out with close association with oil and gas infrastructure. It's been quite a difficult process, the site selection, but we've got we've joined with some very good partners now who've been extremely helpful in enabling this work to go ahead. And we've also done a pilot survey to test out our settlement panel structure to make sure that they're suitable for offshore conditions. And these have been designed and then we've tested them out at the EMEC sites in Orkney, which is a pretty good test of infrastructure given the extreme conditions here. There's quite a lot of biodiversity information starting to come through and we're looking at that in terms of laboratory analysis, doing detailed analysis of what comes in on these panels, looking at different substrate type. We're looking at an image analysis process and the workflow for that and we're trying to automate some of that where it's possible to do so and we're also using this information to inform the choice of tissue sampling which will then lead on in later work packages to the DNA analysis for the, the connectivity, the genetic connectivity. The point of today is to, to think a little bit and discuss a bit how our work on this biodiversity coming out from the Chase Sands programme can be useful for informing the oil and gas and the offshore wind infrastructure operation and decommissioning some of those different types of operations that take place out in the North Sea. We know that in times gone by, this area hosted extensive extensive shellfish reefs which supported fish, birds and cetaceans and in fact right through the trophic levels. What we've got now is quite extensive sedimentary areas with numerous islands of artificial structures. And so over time, we've had a sort of removal and fragmentation of habitats, and this has resulted in biodiversity losses and biodiversity gains. But I think the question that's quite pertinent is what could the future look like for the North Sea? What could it look like in five years, 10 years and beyond? We've got an opportunity to reduce the fragmentation and to promote ecological coherence across this ecosystem. And we've got an opportunity to enhance regional ecosystem services. We know that if we can enhance biodiversity, this will also help to support specific fishery types and to enhance carbon sequestration. But we've also got some challenges because we need to balance this against issues of the spread of non-native and nuisance species, which involves understanding the vectors and routes of infection and also monitoring for that and being able to, to come in at an early stage and pick up issues. So I think some key questions are, you know, at what scales could and should ecosystems be restored as part of decommissioning processes? And how could that be integrated and then be embedded into the decommissioning processes and support, you know, and enhance, add value to the transition to net zero carbon emissions. And I'm saying this because these habitats that are biodiversity rich are often the habitats that are the ones sequestering the carbon just to make that link very clear. So just looking in brief at the potential policy linkages, 
Biodiversity net gain, is there a way of using some of the structures as a basis for reef restoration to enhance the biodiversity gain? And looking at the MMO strategic plan, it says that they want to have well-functioning ecosystems. Can we look at this and say what ecosystems are needed? Where are they needed? Can and should they be co-located as part of decommissioning and development of offshore wind? How long does it take for them to become established and functioning? But hopefully that gives some thoughts and considerations. Thank you very much for your attention. And back to you, Dickon. Thanks, Joe. That was great. It's really interesting. We've already had some questions coming in, but as I say, we'll keep those to the end. Next up, we've got uh, Tom Wilding from SAMS, and Tom's going to talk to us about some of the work he's been doing combining AI with uh, biodiversity and ecological research. Right, over to you. So, yeah, I'm Tom Wilding, um, and I'm at, um, at SAMS, the Scottish Association for Marine Science, and I'm going to be talking about the North Sea 3D project, which is about automating the process of marine growth identification and the, and the uh, estimation of the biomass of that marine growth. Before I dive into the details, I just want to introduce two of my colleagues that are working on this. John Halpin is uh, really in charge of the uh, image analysis and the convolutional neural nets, whereas, and Joe Marlow does the photography and the 3D photogrammetry. This presentation is, is really their, their work as, as much as anyone's. Our core objectives within North Sea 3D were firstly to identify key marine growth assemblages and develop methods for their biomass estimation, and, and then to train machines to identify key taxa in marine growth assemblages from the video footage, uh, and then use and combine these outputs from objectives one and two to estimate marine growth assemblages across the entirety of the North Sea. In terms of linking this to biodiversity theme more explicitly, we're generating standard operating procedures for data gathering in terms of uh, ROV methodology, that's remotely operated vehicles, uh, getting, the, uh, getting the video data, and we're proving the utility of machines in identifying key members of biodiverse uh, assemblages, and we're quantifying that biodiversity, quantifying biodiversity relevant taxa, and that, that would include, for example, cold water corals, we're able to quantify the amount of that particular and others too. Just by way of an introduction to, to 3D photogrammetry um, and how does it work, it stitches together uh, standard photographs that you take with your phone or a camera. It identifies common points is that in those images and from that it generates effectively a dense point cloud uh, coordinates of in the x, y and z planes. So you, you take, to generate a 3D model, you just take uh, lots of images of uh, around the feature of interest. Of course, though, the, the camera cannot see what it cannot see, and, and um, that, in our context of biomass estimation, includes the interstitial voids that, uh, that the camera can't see. And so any, any model, any 3D model of uh, a marine biota needs calibration when you're converting the volume to the mass, which is what we're fundamentally interested in. So we've been doing this, and, and for some species, like, like Desmophyllum pertussum, the, the cold-water coral, that's a relatively good and consistent relationship with the photogrammetric volume versus the dry weight. For other taxa, it's more complicated for uh, Metridium dianthus, which is the plumose anemone, which, which is a very dominant taxon on, on marine structures. And the dry weight relationship between the photogrammetric volume depends very much on whether the feeding tentacles are in or are retracted in blue or extended in, in the orange. We can generate similar models from, from industry footage, so extending it from 
from, in a sense, the ideal um, aquarium setting, and the, the results are very encouraging. Cold water corals, and we've got uh, lots of these models from North Sea structures. Cold water corals are, of course, biodiversity hotspots, and, and we can generate excellent models from industry ROV footage, um, and that um, will help us understand the importance of these. In terms of moving on to automated image analysis, then, uh, a tiny bit of background to that. Technological innovations mean that underwater imagery is increasingly cheap and easy to obtain and the quality of the imagery is going up as well and that's really important if you're wishing to make 3D models from it. However, underwater imagery is very time consuming to assess, at least if you're using humans to do that, and, and, and that won't change even, even as the um, amount of data or, or the, the cost of getting the data decreases, the cost of analysing it is only likely to increase if humans are involved. So machines or algorithms, well, we're, we are going to need machines to help us in, in assessing this footage. And machines can be trained to identify features in images, and that's what we've demonstrated as part of the Sea 3D project. So we've developed machines that are optimized for marine image analysis. So the uh, marine images pose all sorts of additional challenges um, around water turbidity, for example. Uh, but we've trained machines to can identify really any, any element of biodiversity that can be observed by a human in underwater images. So the take-home message here is if, if, if a human can identify it in an underwater image, then we can train the machines. And uh, we've developed combined 3D models. So the machine is trained on North Sea footage, uh, but is applied to a different environment. So it, it demonstrates the machine generalizes very well, which is important. And uh, we've, we've added, though, the uh, urchin Echinus esculentus to assist in this, this uh, demonstration. And we can stick these images uh, uh, and create a 3D photo mosaic from them with the automated uh, identification applied on top rendered into a 3D model and the auto ID uh, will be applied generating uh, different colors and identifying the, the, the taxa of key interest to us and this can be applied and more beyond and we can apply that technology to industry ROV footage um, that model we can identify uh, in three dimensions, each pixel associated with the taxa in which we're interested. And we can apply that finally uh, to demonstrate uh, again how good the machine is to another key taxon in which we're interested, which is the edible mussel, Mytilus edulis, which is a very dominant uh, taxon on North Sea uh, footage, and it will color code them, uh, hopefully a nice pink or a purple color light. It's very uh, good at identifying mussels and creating a auto-identified 3D model. So to summarize, image analysis will inform biodiversity, health and restoration assessments of key biotopes associated with man-made structures and beyond actually. We can train machines to identify anything that we can see in video footage and that in will include non-native species. And image analysis of the type that I've just described will enable an assessment over relevant, i.e. large scales and I, I think it will be increasingly essential as we move to more widespread adoption of autonomous data collection, for example, using autonomous underwater vehicles. The utilization of, uh, of the techniques shown here will provide essential evidence to the management of offshore commissioning and decommissioning, uh, including uh, this issue of environmental net gain. So that concludes my uh, brief presentation. Um, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Tom. And it's great to see that intersection of technology and ecology come together. So thank you very much. Next, 
up, we've got Paul Summerfield, who's going to talk to us both about the Dreams project, which he's leading, but also the synthesis work, which we've been doing, which is bringing together experts across the Insight programme and the global community. So over to you, Paul. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Paul Summerfield from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory. Going to talk about um, some thoughts about biodiversity cult from two rather different projects that I head up, which are collaborations with uh, other organisations, particularly the University of Plymouth and CFAS. So just to introduce you to the two projects, DREAMS, which stands for Decommissioning Relative Effects of Alternative Management Scenarios, asks, what does the science tell us and how can this be used to inform decisions about different decommissioning strategies? Scientists' job is to provide options and evidence. It's not to make decisions. So that's largely what DREAMS is about, providing evidence for what might happen under different situations. And it involves a lot of uh, evidence synthesis, meta-analyses, uh, ecosystem modeling, putting structures into ecosystem models, um, also some of the connectivity work, similar to what Joe was talking about earlier, uh, and then linking through to ecosystem services, which addresses the natural capital approaches and so on that both Tom and Joe have mentioned already. The synthesis project is very much about what scientists think. It asks, is there a consensus view among scientists about the what effects structures have and what to do with structures at the end of their lives. And its global project involves scientists from around the world, including all the Insight PIs. We've put them through a structured process to try and sample their brains to see what they actually think. That approach will allow us to address questions that can't be directly addressed by doing traditional research. So that's proving quite interesting at the moment. First, I want to discuss what is the evidence for effects of man-made structures on biodiversity and ecosystems. And we can say with, with absolute certainty that there have been many published peer-reviewed studies of the biodiversity on and around man-made structures in the sea. But we can also see that the main focus of these has been fairly limited. It's mainly been on fish and invertebrate communities close to or inhabiting the structures. We've uh, applied the um, protocols and so on from gathering environmental evidence and synthesizing environmental evidence. So we produced a systematic map of all the literature, published literature looking at the ecological environmental effects of man-made structures in the sea. We found about over 20,000 potential papers on that. And through processes, we whittled those down to a little under a thousand and that uh, map it's effectively a big spreadsheet uh, it's available open access online it's already being used in our research and it's already been used by other researchers elsewhere uh, as a very um, quick and simple way of finding where are the appropriate papers to cover whatever it is you're interested in um, and that is a, a major output from the dreams project we have been through those papers, potential things we might be interested in from a biodiversity perspective. We also looked at different uh, man-made structure types. So there's oil and gas, there's also artificial reefs, offshore wind, shipwrecks, renewable energy devices, cables, pipelines and things and so on. Most of it is very clustered around fish and invertebrates. Well, there are several papers on birds and so on, and plants on artificial reefs and so on. We then went through the papers using another structured process and extracted data that's relevant. We chose to look at fish and invertebrates because we had enough information to work with. And what we're trying to do here is to compare the effects of different types of structures with each other and also with different natural backgrounds. So here we're looking at differences in uh, a range of outcomes, abundance, biomass and diversity compared to natural soft sediments or natural reefs and looking at the differences based on um, data extracted from about nearly 400 papers here. But we can see that there are differences in the effects of offshore wind and oil and gas, 
tend to have not much effect compared with perhaps shipwrecks and artificial reefs. And this work will be developing and we will firm all that up as we move forward. The take-home message is that uh, although man-made structures affect biodiversity ecosystems, they may do so differently, but there are some general patterns in there. And these kind of meta-analytical approaches are much more robust than just looking at an individual study. In effect, we're bringing together lots of different studies to see if they tell us the same story. Are the effects of man-made structures on biodiversity and ecosystems a reason to retain them? At the moment in the North Sea, the uh, presumption is that everything needs to be removed at the end of its active life, regardless of what it's doing. Leaving it in place is considered dumping, and also using it as an artificial reef if it's oil and gas infrastructure is also considered to be dumping. The scientist's job is to provide evidence and uh, thoughts about alternatives. We would say that the communities on and around man-made structures may be considered either beneficial or detrimental to conservation or other policy objectives, depending on how those are framed and how they are implemented. In some parts of the world, for example, commercial and recreational fisheries are supported by man-made structures, whereas in others they are excluded from man-made structures. So there are decisions to be made. Likewise, the role of man-made structures in providing islands of hard substrate and therefore increasing potential connectivity for larval stages may be considered beneficial or detrimental. We sampled the brains of this group of scientists, but certainly the, uh, the, 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 the general positives there that uh, some sort of leaving it in place or leaving part of it in place was considered to be a sensible option. And total removal was the least favoured option, certainly for single structures. And what about the scientific evidence base for decommissioning itself? How clear a view do we have of what the effect of removing a structure is? The presumption or assumption is that removing the structures will reduce the potential for further contamination from the structures. It will also remove the biodiversity supported by the structures, but somehow it will allow the seabed to be in some way restored. But as Joe has already said this morning, the seabed as it is now is nothing like the way the seabed was 150 years ago. So uh, what is it that we're restoring or what is it that restoring actually means here? And the uh, presumption for total removal ignores potential benefits of leaving man-made structures or parts of man-made structures in place. There is a strong preference amongst the scientists for regional strategies. Just to clarify the evidence for that, we could only find 57 articles that looked at uh, decommissioning directly. They looked at most of them were about oil and gas infrastructure, particularly in the States, but there is uh, some in the UK and uh, we hope that there will be more moving forward. When we asked the scientists as one of the exercises we did, we gave them a perception study. They had provided us with about 400 different effects. We then grouped those into different types of effects and we then asked them the scientists to say, given these effects, would you want to retain or remove from the environment? We can see that very few of the effects were viewed by that group of scientists as being very strong reasons for leaving them in place. There was a thought that, you know, generally the physical structure, connectivity and hydrodynamics were viewed as worth retaining. And generally, uh, none of the other main effects were thought to be reasons for leaving the structures in place. We've been through part of the systematic map, adding information about ecosystem services. Uh, thinking about uh, how different activities may enhance or reduce different ecosystem services. And here we're looking at the different uh, strategies for decommissioning structures in the sea. So they're things like protect in place, remove part and add protective structures and so on. It looks as though full removal or things related to full removal, complete removal, 
are generally considered rather bad from an ecosystem services point of view. We also have the point that uh, nothing suits everything. And of the different decommissioning options, we have um, some that are substantially enhance that, which would be to remove part and add protective structures. Some will um, degrade it a lot, which is full removal. And then some of the other um, options are intermediate. So in summary, research may provide answers to policy relevant questions, but this is not always possible. And other methods of developing a robust evidence base may prove useful. Although man-made structures may affect components of biodiversity, these effects are generally fairly local and wider scale effects, particularly of networks of structures, and I'm thinking of what we're doing in terms of offshore wind, for example, now are poorly understood. And trade-offs are everywhere and trade-offs are complicated. Thank you very much, Paul. As you know, I always find your work fascinating um, and right at the pointy end upward policy. So hopefully we can have some more discussion about that later. We're very fortunate to have Victoria Metheringham from DEFRA here. Victoria sits in the evidence team in DEFRA and she's going to give us just five minutes of some of the things that are, I guess, concerning the DEFRA scientists at the moment. So, yes, um, I work um, in the Marine Biodiversity and Environment and Monitoring team in DEFRA. Uh, we provide um, support. We're a supporting function for a multiple of policy areas across marine and fisheries. Just wanted to, to note before I go on, when, I, when, I, when I'm sort of speaking on behalf of DEFRA, DEFRA in, in terms of the offshore region, we cover English waters and for the rest of the UK, the UK countries cover their own areas. Uh, but first of all, thank you very much for such great engagement and discussion with Insight. We've um, really appreciated the involvement so far. We're really excited to be involved and to hear about all of the work that's going on. The Insight programme is of really great interest to us here in DEFRA. It's specifically useful <laughs> um, for UK marine strategy in achieving uh, good environmental status, marine spatial prioritisation, marine licensing. It will help with supporting and complement the work that we're already doing under the Marine Natural Capital programme. And at the top of the list is around marine net gain and OEAP, the Offshore Wind Enabling Action Programme. Uh, but this has noticeably stepped up our ambition and the speed of our ambition in developing offshore wind and alongside it, an offshore wind environmental improvement package. Basically, the plan is to accelerate deployment while enhancing and protecting the marine environment. You will have seen the DEFRA Secretary of State a couple of weeks ago made the announcement on the Environmental Improvement Plan, which also set out marine net gain. So this is a, a developing policy area that's working alongside uh, our offshore wind policy and marine spatial prioritisation and UK marine strategy. Um, I wanted to mention that because I think it's often a worry externally and internally uh, that government can work in silos. And I wanted to make it clear that the marine net gain work is strongly integrated. So the main areas that we are looking at regarding the stepping up of offshore wind development, um, which I think are most relevant here. Um, I know that, that a lot of the work in Insight is man offshore man-made structures, but obviously develop increasing the ambition of offshore wind. This is where we're particularly interested. I really want to get stuck into the detail of and um, find some supporting evidence around. So if, if we understand uh, measures to compensate impacts at strategic level, this will in turn assist us in understanding if there are any specific standards to apply that will help with consenting and assessments. We also need to deliver a strategic approach to environmental monitoring. We are working with the ALBs on strategic monitoring and best use of data. So it's a lot of work already underway that um, work like Insight will really be able to help and support with. So how 
how can insight help? So I've pulled out some key gaps, which I felt uh, were really relevant to the work that you're doing. And just listening to the presentations then, it's quite clear that you're already on, on the path of answering some of the gaps that we have. So we're really interested in nature-focused design. So we're not just looking for accidental or incidental benefits for nature from a structure at sea. We want intentional, we want to see intentional design that will deliver environmental and biodiversity gains, which leads us on to the next question. Is this really a net gain? These are things that we, we want to know. We will need to see evidence that it is a gain and not just a, a, you know, a replacement like for like. So we need, we need to be able to see evidence of that. We want to know what are the circumstances that have made a difference, positive difference. We want to know what are the circumstances that have led to a positive difference for biodiversity, for environmental gains. Is it about the design? Is it about the materials, the location, the scale? And what was the difference? Was it significant? These are the type of things that we would like to know. And there's also some particular questions which we're really interested in around the food chain. A lot of this work could potentially help us with good environment, uh, reporting on good environmental status for the UK Marine Strategy as well. So uh, what are the food chain impacts associated with any of this? Are there any measurable improvements here? And we'd also like to see clarification on any impacts of the food chain of whether it's potentially just behavioural or whether, you know, what does it mean? What will it indicate to any species that are impacted? We really want to see what the change is and how it was tested and does it demonstrate a positive impact? DEFRA would really welcome supporting evidence to assist us in developing these policies so we can maximise the benefits for biodiversity and the environment while hopefully not creating too much complexity for developers and delivering our energy targets. So not too much of an ask, but I think that's it in a nutshell, really. Thank you, Victoria. No small task in front of you then. Joe. I'm going to come to you first. We've got a question from Anna Chavera. What are your thoughts of the introduction of artificial hard, hard substrate in protected sedimentary habitats such as Annex 1 subtidal sandbanks? And I know this is a incredibly hot topic in the offshore wind industry at the moment. It's a very tricky question. <laughs> Thanks for asking that. I mean, this is such an open question. Would there be an impact on the the structure of the habitat, the physical, you know, or another key species that would be impacted if you put a hard substrate in there. I mean, just try to bring it to life a bit, you know, sand, sandbanks can often be important for things like sand eels, which are, you know, important then for higher higher up the trophic level and if you fragment the habitat, that could cause a problem higher up in the food web. So it's just understanding the individual cases, I think, rather than trying to generalise there. Some areas, it, you know, it's not a problem, but maybe in other specific areas, it is a problem for very specific species or impacts on the habitat. Great. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, it, it's, it's an incredibly complicated topic that is really testing offshore wind developers at the moment as they're looking at putting cable protection across places like the Dogger Bank. Great. I'm going to go to Tom. I'm going to come to you next. There's a question from Kai Ferguson about what can, what, what can industry do to ensure you get the standard and type of data from various environmental surveys conducted across the project timelines? And I know this is something that you and your team have been working quite closely on. Uh, we're developing a standard operating procedure for uh, ROV pilots to optimise the data collection for 3D model generation and auto ID. Uh, I mean, in short, the uh, that ROV survey should be done in a sort of lawnmower pattern with as much 
crisscrossing as possible so that the same part of the structure is imaged from multiple angles. Ideally, stereo pair of cameras would be involved so that the model can be scaled much, much better. And with a stereo pair of cameras, and, and these are high definition cameras, with, with a stereo pair, you, the, the software will auto calibrate itself between the images produced by that stereo pair. There's, there's a few other technical details which I share with you about how to, how to optimize for for, for the sort of biological purposes as well as the more the engineering aspect. Joe, I've got a question for you. I guess a technical question about your test sites. Are they all similar in terms of height in the water column? Are they all on rig legs, turbine bases, or, or some on mattresses close to the seafloor? And is that being considered in your analyses? So just to clarify, we're not putting our collection panels directly on infrastructure. We've designed a standalone unit of deployment. So it's in the vicinity of infrastructure, but not directly attached to it. The, what we've decided to do to standardize is to just have the, the panels suspended at a specific height below the water surface so that we've got that comparison of what's happening at that level in the water column. And that's really the best we could do because the sites are very different in depth and uh, also because the environment's quite tricky to work in, as, as, as we know. We've had to account in the design um, for the moorings to be flexible to withstand the conditions. So some of the moorings have got elasticated strops in them to, to withstand issues with, with waves and so forth. So the best way to standardise was to, to have the, the panel suspended at a similar position across all the different sites. Thanks, Joe. And Tom, I'm going to come to you next. There's a question from the European Marine Board um, representative online saying, would it be possible and useful to have cameras installed on offshore, in offshore structures in addition to monitoring by divers and ROVs so you can track biodiversity settlement? I mean, it would give you the time element, wouldn't it? Uh, enable you to assess change over time in, in more detail. The biofouling community tends to reach uh, a, a sort of climax after relatively short time um, so if you are looking at, at in a sense what do, what is the biodiversity associated with structures in the longer term um, that that should be relatively constant it would be possible um, to train a machine to look at elements of that biodiverse arrival and and that could be telemetered back in real time conceivably uh, that that that's technically possible. Uh, again, it would really depend on on um, what the objectives of the of the survey were as to whether whether that would be uh, sufficiently useful. I tell you what, I'm I'm going to ask this question at the top from Claire to you, Paul, and then see if anyone else has got anything they want to add into it. So, talking about evidence for possible contaminant leaching from offshore structures that could impact on efforts to improve biodiversity, particularly if things are left in situ. And I know you discussed this quite a lot in your synthesis project workshops in here. Legacy effects of contaminants was something that really concerns the scientific community. We're getting better at looking at, uh, for example, microbial communities in the sediments around structures, which are not things that we've traditionally looked at. Natalie Hicks from the University of Essex and others have been looking at those. And there is uh, one of the reasons why you might want to retain at least part of a structure in place is to prevent the sediment from being plowed up and turned over, when that's particularly around a lot of these older structures um, there was considerable um, contamination. Much of what uh, OSPAR has achieved over the years is to reduce 
and clean up the, uh, many of the effluents and outputs from operational structures. And that's that, that's been really good work. So a structure going in now would have all sorts of restrictions placed on what is done and how it's done compared with one that was put in place in the 70s, where it was effectively just towed out and stuck in and started drilling. And that was it. It was the, like the Wild West in some ways. So legacy contamin contamination is uh, one of the reasons why scientists think leaving some of these structures in place might be a better idea than trying to pull out every last bit. You, the work that you're doing in Dreams and since this project, Paul, if, if you can isolate information from MPAs and non-MPAs to see whether there are any differences in there, particularly in informing the ongoing development of MPA conservation measures. And I don't know whether that's something you, you, you're able uh, to do or not. I guess it's a spatial, it's a spatial delineation of your data in some way. Yeah, it's not really spatial data. It's just, it, it, it's uh, pointing you towards large numbers of, of published studies on different things, uh, which from which you can then extract real data if you want. And that's what we're doing in the meta-analysis. So potentially, yes, we would have a column in the, and I, I'm fishing here because I can't remember. Um, within the, the systematic map spreadsheet, there are a whole range of um, factors that you can use to select groups of papers, filters, if you like. And I can't remember if MPA, not MPA, is one of them. It certainly could be one of them. So have a look. It's online. It's open access. If it doesn't do what you want it to do, get back to us and we can maybe modify it moving forward. Uh, what we have looked at is, um, it was quite interesting, actually. We, we In the meta-analyses, we had shipwrecks as a category. And uh, so we were comparing shipwrecks with artificial reefs, with uh, oil and gas infrastructure, with offshore wind infrastructure and so on. Um, and it did make it quite a considerable difference when we decided that actually shipwrecks that have been deliberately put there are really artificial reefs rather than shipwrecks. And uh, mm -hmm. so when we did that, it changed quite a lot of the um, the outcome. So a shipwreck that has um, been wrecked, <laughs> as opposed to a shipwreck that has been effectively dumped, to use the oil and gas terminology, uh, are not necessarily quite the same things. So. The answer is maybe, and uh, get in touch with us and we can talk about it. Brilliant. Thank you, Paul. So I now have a question from Martin, uh, Martin Lilly from DEFRA. That's really interesting. I, I know that in the Insight programme, we focused, we've been going for 10 years, so we've been focusing mainly on oil and gas infrastructure. And looking forward, we're starting to focus on fixed offshore wind. Um, and I know that's some of the, the sort of transition conversations going on between Insight and the Offshore Wind Evidence and Change programme and the Eco Wind programme and all the kind of other offshore wind work. Martin's got a question that's, I guess, with a further time horizon, do the speakers think that floating offshore structures will have the same ecosystem service impacts as fixed structures? There, there's an interesting question, I think, from all of your perspectives around how, how that affects connectivity, uh, what we should do in a decommissioning phase. I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that. One of, one of the things that I said about the insight synthesis approach was that it allowed you to address questions that can't be addressed using direct research. For example, we don't know anything about the ecosystem effects of large networks of floating offshore wind, because there isn't any. So we have to make it up or model it in some way, or ask scientists what they think uh, in a structured way. And uh, that was quite interesting. So, so we do think that um, floating offshore wind will have, in some ways, fairly similar effects to fixed 
but obviously they'll be in deeper water. Um, there'll be, um, you know, we, we're building models to be able to look at the effects of floating offshore wind. And the question was in terms of ecosystem services, right? So that will depend on on which parts. Of, I mean, the structures have to be moored, so they will affect the seabed. The structures will have that surface bit that does a lot of the ecosystem service provision, you know, fixed in carbon and um, um, filter feeders eating phytoplankton and converting it into detritus that sinks to the seabed. You'd imagine all that will still happen. It might be a bit more diffuse at the seabed, but you know, it depends on what the densities of these things are. You'll still have the rotors going round and, and, and doing what they do and so on and so forth. What's missing is the bit in the middle. You're replacing um, a large pylon generally or a monopile with a set of cables. And it'd be, it'll be interesting, but I would imagine, and the results from the Insight Synthesis back this up because we did ask them about floating offshore wind, knowing that nobody really knew what the answers were. So we thought that would be an interesting thing to do. And generally they thought it would be fairly similar to um, fixed offshore wind. Yeah, I would just sort of concur with that really. I think the zonation will be same, the, the same. So the, the zonation between if you're in deep water to corals at the bottom, if you're in the North Sea and you're less than 60 or 70 meters uh, up through a sort of metridium communities and then with, with the mitlis at the top and, and or macroalgae at the very top. I think that's likely to be very similar to existing structures. I think that, you know, a major aspect of the change associated with these developments is around access change and there will be a degree of, of access change as a consequence of floating offshore whether that's as permanent as it would be with a as with a, a fixed offshore structure i mean I, I don't know but there will be exclusion presumably of bottom bottom seabed fisheries and as paul said i mean it's still attached to the seabed albeit via a, a riser which you know a, a mooring system which is which is more flexible there may be different access by support vessels as well which which may affect uh, the the consequences of these of this type of uh, offshore uh, wind Develop. Uh, just to add just a tiny bit on to what the others have been saying, just thinking about the anchoring of the floating offshore wind probably be a little bit different to, to what we've seen with the other technologies. Um, so there's probably some opportunities there for ecosystem service enhancement, thinking about the design of the anchoring systems. So just wanted to add that to the mix. Tom, there, there is a, a specific question for you from, from Tim that he's asked about for auto idea of 2d images pat patterns of pixel values are learned what 3d properties are learned for, for the auto idea of your models briefly at the moment at the moment we're not extracting 3d information to inform the auto id it's effectively the auto id is based on standard standard image and then it's stitched together as part of the mosaic in process that means that and, and you will have seen this possibly that uh, the same object can be identified as different taxa course is not correct and it's part of the technical challenge is, is to identify where a taxa is and, and what gets the largest number of votes from the machine to optimize that process. We are looking at ways of including 3D information into the training process though through uh, an, a part of, of Insight uh, but that's very much ongoing work. So I'm going to go with a couple of questions now. There's one from Mike Elliott, and then there's uh, some two broader questions I'm going to pull together about restoration, which bring us neatly onto our next webinar, I think. First one's Mike Elliott, who is, of course, part of our Insight community, asking about the context scale of the problem. The Southern North Sea has, joke, had 25,000 kilometres squared of reefs and outcrops and a hard area of man-made structures, installations, 
maybe around 8,000 square metres. Do we give a misleading impression when we map the structure? So this is a scale thing, I think, about both of what we've got in at the moment, but also what we could have in the future, particularly if we're looking at our ambitions for fixed offshore wind in the North Sea. I guess that scale question would be interesting to know how you you're you're all looking at that um would anyone like to comment thanks mike for the question i know you're interested in ecological footprints and all the rest of it and uh but i think it's it's a very um useful thing to bear in mind the the actual scale of the problem in our dreams project we've been modeling the north sea at the north sea scale and putting structures into it and out of it and they've have very little effect, as you might expect, at that scale. So whereas locally, they can have very big effects. So the question at what, uh, you know, what is it that you want to achieve should be what uh, what predicates what's, what matters and what doesn't. We should be uh, able to ignore things where we have the evidence that they can be ignored, if that's the way of putting it. You know, in the Southern North Sea, there are lots of structures. From a connectivity basis, they might be really important. It's not always just about the area of the structure or the amount of habitat. It could just be crucially where it is and when it's there that matters as much. So we're just trying to get a better understanding of the whole thing, really. Tom, Joe, do you have anything you might want to add on that question of scale? Yeah, I can comment just very briefly. Um, I would say that natural reefs, certainly in the North Sea, to my knowledge anyway, would be would be relatively low relief and quite different from artificial structures, uh, at least at least of the type of oil and gas or or surface penetrating renewable structures. And so that they are they are quite different structures. So they're, they're not they're not natural. I mean, they're, they're not natural reefs, these artificial reefs of that type. Um, and they exist in different parts of the water column and then they communicate with each other in different ways because, for example, of the stratification of the water column. I think these are all issues which separate uh, natural reefs from from us, uh, at least some artificial. Great, thanks, Tom. Um... So I, I, just building on from what Tom said there, uh, I think just understanding a bit more about how connected the artificial versus the natural reefs, understanding that better might be able then to answer the question that Mike's asking. Uh, but I think at the moment that information isn't there. David's making a point about we have clear but separate guidelines to enable the construction of artificial reefs, separate to the decommissioning of man-made structures. So should there not be more focus on implementing those artificial reef guidelines and less on changing the rules for decommissioning? And um, Kai Ferguson is talking about, uh, does DEFRA consider upcoming offshore developments as an opportunity to further our understanding of positive impact on the food chain? I, I don't know, Victoria, I know you don't sit in the in the in the OSPAR facing team in DEFRA so I don't know whether you can probably can't comment on on those in detail but I don't know whether you can give any comment on sort of around environmental restoration or net gain yeah. type areas. Well I can on the around the UK marine strategy of the food chain and biodiversity descriptors are the ones that we're we're really keen to look at new information coming in and considering different ways of how we assess against those descriptors and absolutely we're very interested in the the developments offshore and how that this can potentially supplement how we report against those descriptors for UKMS so that there is a really we do see this as an opportunity to help us uh, and the food chain food chain descriptor is one that we're, we're looking at and um, so I would say that's a big yes. Great thanks Victoria and David just uh, on the bit about decommissioning or artificial reef guidelines I believe that if you have a oil and gas structure, you have a requirement to abide by the decommissioning guidelines alongside the artificial reef guidelines. So it's not a question of one or the other, it's probably both of them at the same time. 
very quickly, Paul. People are talking about decommissioning as if it's complete removal. And actually, what a part of the point is decommissioning can involve other things like creating artificial reefs, which is what they do in Gulf of Mexico. It's what they do in California. Yeah. It's what we're not allowed to do in the North Sea. And that was part of the motivation for an awful lot of this work. Can we at least just consider different decommissioning options? And uh, that's what we've been doing. We, we are considering artificial reefs and we're, we're, it's something that we're looking at internally and how they potentially play a role. But I mean, that's, that's pretty much all I can say really at the moment on that. Okay, great. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you all very much for attending today and uh, we look forward to seeing you in the future. And, and again, thanks to all our panellists for excellent presentations and discussion at the end. We will hopefully see you in April.